Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share a keynote session from the DFARM 2018 conference on how Estonia became the fastest country in the world to go digital. In this session, Indrik Onik of the eEstonia showroom, a representative of the Estonian government, presents on how Estonian citizens have come to own their personal health records, how doctors have to get permission to use these records, and how patients chose their own medications digitally. When you have a chance, check out the keynotes for DFARM 2019, which is taking place September 17th and 18th in Boston. DFARM is an innovation event specializing in clinical trials. Enjoy the podcast. We can really start with this digitalization story in the early 90s when, when, the, when we had restored the independence uh, it's not regained, it's restored. It's a very uh, important difference for us, of course. Restored the independence and then found us uh, having a huge challenge. Now, you have a democratic state. Uh, you have 1.3 million people. It is correct, 1.4 million inhabitants, but 1. Point, let's say 3 million citizens. And, and uh, you want to provide uh, services, public sector uh, services to everybody on equal terms. But now you have a huge challenge. Uh, you have uh, an area of 45,000 square kilometers. I mean, it's not a lot comparing to the U.S. or any other bigger countries around the world, but if you put into European perspective, we are bigger than Switzerland, bigger than Belgium, bigger than Denmark, bigger than the Netherlands, but have significantly less people, which means then that the density of population is really low. And if the density of population is low, then it's more challenging, uh, challenging to reach everybody, especially if... Uh, what is it, over one-third of the population lives in the capital city, then it makes it even, even more complicated. And I'm not exaggerating, people live in the middle of the forest, you know. Um, how can you provide public sector services in the middle of the forest uh, in a way where you don't set up a public sector office in the middle of the forest? And that actually was not an option for us either, because now I'm going to put things into perspective of numbers. Um, we had an annual budget of one point, no, yeah, uh, we had an an annual budget of uh, of around, uh, I think it was 130 uh, million euros uh, as the whole state. We were talking about social welfare, uh, police, you know, education, defense, and if you have that amount of money, you can't really build up a whole society in an old-fashioned way, so you have to come up with new ideas. And one of the ideas that we had is that let's go uh, you know, electronic, let's go digital, let's buy the best solutions around the world from the best companies around the world. And you know what we did? Uh, we came to the U.S. We had a lot of discussion with a lot of different companies, but as soon as they heard that our, our annual budget for IT solutions is 130,000 U.S. dollars, they very kindly told us that, uh, you know, we're free to look at anything, but, you know, they would rather if we don't touch anything at the same time because we simply didn't have the money to, to come up with the, with the uh, solutions that they were providing. But then we realized, okay, maybe, maybe money, maybe the technology that they provide here is not relevant. We can start with smaller amounts and, and our own technology because the competences were there. We're talking about the Institute of Cybernetics, for example, that was established in the mid-50s. And, and now in the early 90s, it was turned into a private sector company. And the private sector company actually had the competences, had had it for like you know half a century to do certain things. Uh, but what was one 
you know, absolute, absolutely necessary part of this transformation process was the digital leadership. Uh, the fact that the government was supporting this, the fact that uh, they were supporting it continuously, so even if you change the prime minister, you change the president, you still have this support, and also that the private sector was collaborating with the, with the public sector. So in our case, uh, what has happened is that uh, the government has always been the initiator of change. They've said, okay, this needs to be done, that needs to be done, that needs to be done. But the solutions themselves have been developed by private sector companies, right? So, so there has been huge collaboration, of course, adding the civil society to maybe keep things on track at certain times as well. And that, that has now led us to a situation where 99% of all government services regardless of the, you know, if it's central government or local municipality, 99% of all services are accessible over the internet, you know, regardless of the time, location, or device that you use. 4 a.m. on a Saturday morning, in the middle of the forest, on a mobile phone, right? It includes, of course, uh, e-health as well, or medical uh, services, but I will get to that at a later point right now, kind of setting the perspective first. Now, um, and this now has led us to a situation um, that where we seem to have a bit of moral high ground to talk about certain topics. Um, and, and it turns out some things are done rather well in Estonia. I'm not going to you know, stop here for too long, but maybe one thing that, that needs to be pointed out here is that this, this you know, let's say ratings and rankings, they are all you know, linked to digitalization uh, or let's say automatization, but you can't really automize or digitalize anything if you just add coding to it. You, know, you, you put, just start writing lines of code and you think now you're, you've done it. It's actually about the, the regulations, the laws. They have to be very flexible. And, and I think we've tried to do this uh, for the past 25 years quite a bit. And, and this has led us now to the situation where we are actually the most competitive tax system in the world, which is nice, but even better is that we... Uh, are the most efficient tax collection system in the world. And why I bring this up is that, you know, you can't have the most competitive tax system if it's overly complicated, you know. You, you can't have it uh, if you have thousands of pages of tax code and a lot of exemptions. In our case, we have a flat tax rate, you know, uh, personal income tax as well as corporate income tax. Uh, we, when we talk about corporate income tax, the, do you know what is the corporate income tax rate in Estonia? A wild guess, anyone? Yeah, close enough, it's 0%. Yeah, it's not, th he said 30, you know, it's uh, 0%. Uh, as, lo as long as you reinvest the money in the company, if the money stays in the company, if you take it out of the company, then you're closer, it's 20%. But still a flat tax rate. Unless you, you pay dividends three years in a row, then you're a mature dividend payer, and then it's 14%. And, and, and you know, Keeping things simple and stupid simple, you know, attracts a lot of um, investors towards Estonia, and that makes the government understand that maybe we're doing some things right, and then they're willing to go forward with these things. Um, okay, uh, maybe moving forward a bit now. Um, the most challenging, I think, thing for, uh, for the Estonian government, as well as a lot of private sector companies around the world, is that if you come up with a new solution, something that is completely different from the previous ways, then you know, finding, coming up with the idea, that's not the challenge. Finding the money is not the challenge either, because if you have 
good idea, you have the right people to execute it, money will always be there. That's never, I've never seen it to be a problem, let's put it this way. But what is challenging, how to get the people trusting and using the new solutions that you provide, because they have no previous experience with it. So I don't know if we cracked the, cracked the challenge, but we figured something out. We figured out that uh, people you know, need to feel the benefits and not something that they can feel in 10 years' time or 15 years' time. They want to feel it instantly. And again, we are all different, and generalizing is not nice ever. However, there are certain things that people do enjoy a lot these days. One of those things is money, and the other one is time. So if they had more time and more money, maybe they would be happier, maybe they wouldn't be happier, I don't know, but at least they would be more willing to maybe try out new things. Uh, but the government was not going to pay people to use digital solutions. You know, uh, That was not going to happen. But what we could do is that we could make sure that if you use a digital solution uh, instead of an analog, let's say paper-based solution, then it costs you less money, which means the money that you've already earned, you don't have to give it out. You can, at the end of the day, you have more money in your pocket, essentially. And, and in our case, Digital services are roughly 20%, always 20% cheaper just because of the, let's say, the government uh, fee of the service is 20% cheaper. Now, why that, why it's set up this way is because we understood that, you know, if, if digital solutions are cheaper for the government, which they are, then they should also be cheaper for the end user. And if you still decide that you want to use the more expensive way, then you can. I mean, I said 99% of government services are accessible over the internet. That is true. It's also true that 100% of government services are accessible face-to-face -face on paper. Uh, it doesn't mean that we run a dual system. It doesn't mean that it costs us a lot of money. It just means that you, as an end user, can give the data to the government on paper. However, the government does not gather it on paper. It will be digitalized. Uh, but you have the opportunity. Uh, so, so that was one way how to get people uh, using the digital solutions, um, money as an uh, initiative. Um, the other thing is, is, uh, is that uh, if you have solutions that are provided electronically, then you need to have access to these solutions. And access means you know, devices as well as internet in our case. Now, that means that the internet doesn't have to be there, kind of. Sometimes it has to be there always. It has to be fast, reliable, affordable. So what we did there is that we built the fiber optic cable network and gave all of the uh, service providers equal access, which means that their level of uh, service is very similar, and people now only decide which service provider to use uh, on you know, the fact who gives them the best pr price. And, and what is the quality? I mean... 3G networks cover all of Estonian territory. 3G is fast enough to, to definitely to use public sector services. Then 4G covers nearly all of Estonian territory, which means it's fast enough to watch you know, YouTube videos in HD and it's not even buffering. Plus now we have also 5G available in the capital city, which you can use, but let's say not many Estonians have a device that can handle 5G yet, but probably in a couple of years they will have, so that's also happening as well. And even in my maybe own experience as well, I was, ah, yeah, let's, let's put that also uh, into perspective. Uh, I said it has to be fast, reliable, affordable. What means affordable? So I have a data plan on my phone that gives me unlimited data in, in the European Union, single market, right? 
Mm, unlimited in reality means that it, you know, 50 gigs is unlimited and then after that the speed drops a bit. Um, so, but we still call it unlimited. Uh, unlimited and 4G access anywhere in Estonia. What do you think how much I pay for it per month? You don't know? $50. $50. Yeah, no. Uh, $7. Yeah, so it's five euros, 89 cents. I think it's around seven, seven, eight dollars. And how is that possible? I was paying actually crazy amounts uh, before. I was paying like $10 or so. And, uh, <laughs> but then the service provider, the other one that I didn't use, called me and said, you know, what are you getting? And, and you know, change over would give you a better um, price. And I said, okay, what are you going to give me? They said like $8 maybe per month. I said, okay, no worries. And then they tried to start the process of changing over, you know, my, my um, um, the uh, number taking, you know, so that they start, uh, start providing the service. And then my own company called me like two hours later and said, you know, Indrek, what are you doing? Like, why are you leaving us? I said, you know, the service, you know, is okay, but the price you're giving me, it's, it's outrageous, you know, 10, 10 euros, uh, sorry, $10 per month. And they said, okay, what are they giving? I said, they told me eight. I said, you know, they're giving me seven, so you have to do better than that. They said, okay, we'll give you, give you, you know, six something, something. Essentially, that's what happened. So I had uh, two hours, two phone calls, and my, you know, the price dropped from $10 to six or $7. So, so that's how we roll there. <laughs> that's how we, we keep it, uh, keep it um, also affordable. And then there's the third part that I'm not going to focus on too much, but still needs to be mentioned, is that if you have you know, a lot of services, you have access to these services, and let's say access is secure, you also have to be sure that people know how to use these services. So education, it's absolutely vital. So what we've done since the late 90s, we've had projects and programs to educate individuals on how to you know, turn on a computer, how to access the internet, how to, uh, you know... Um, print out something, type something, things like that. Mm. And today we've realized that that is not in the focus anymore, that people know how a computer looks like. But people need to be reminded uh, about cyber awareness, cyber security. We call it cyber hygiene, you know. The fact that if somebody sends you an email from an exotic location and claims that they're a relative of yours and, and part of a royal family somewhere, somehow, and they have found gold that belongs to you, and in order to get that gold, you have to send them five or six or seven thousand dollars. Then maybe don't send the money, or if you do, do it once, don't do it twice. Uh, yeah, things like that. We have to remind people. Plus, also the fact that today, let's say we're relatively in the you know same age here, right? So we all remember the time when the internet went, you know mainstream or, or the internet emerged and, and, and you were saying, or I was even saying that, you know, can I go online? And, and you, we, we were going online. Today, nobody goes online. Everybody is online constantly, right? So people need to understand also that, you know, since the online life is kind of the real life, then the online life has consequences in the real life. So if you threaten someone face to face, might end up in jail. If you threaten someone online, on Facebook, let's say, you might end up in jail as well. Uh, okay. Now, I also brought up some of the things that we can't do. Because I said before, 99% of government services are available over the Internet. Uh, you can see there are things that we can't do. So can't get married, can't get divorced, can't uh, do real estate transactions. Um, yeah, yet, kind of. You know, these are the things that we want that there is a bit of friction. Uh, to be honest... 
if not probably all of us even here, if we start Googling really hard right now, then in 24 hours we would all be able to uh, write a bit of code when we, where we come up with an application where if you, if you, you know, there are two users of that application and if one likes the other one, they are married. Or you probably know is, is if you swipe right, you're married, you swipe left, you're divorced. Uh, yeah, I mean, technologically speaking, it's not that complicated to do, right? Uh, but these are the transactions that have long-term outcomes, to some even consequences, maybe. And uh, we don't want that it happens so lightheartedly, maybe. So, in other words, these transactions can only happen at the presence of a notary or a legal individual that makes sure that nobody's being manipulated with, nobody's being forced into doing something, everybody understands the risk, they are of sound mind, so to say, and, and essentially that is the key. So I don't maybe need that protection, maybe you don't need that protection, but there are, all, there are more, more uh, let's say, uh, vulnerable members of the society that might need this protection. So these are the things. It's not anything technological. And now, basically, I'm getting to the point where I should talk about also e-health and the medical things. Um, so there are some things that we have. Um, so it was mentioned before as well, and, and you know, digital health data and, and the ability to use that data in, in, um, in research and how it has been done already in Estonia and, and successfully. Well, this is true. In our case, I'll put it this way. Let's say you're all here some, let's say, medical service providers. Let's say you're all doctors, and I'm, I really need to, you know, uh, visit you all, and, and you all help me some way. But at the end of the day, if like that would be a very, very, let's say, uh, tight, tightly scheduled day. But still, let's say I visited all of you in one day, and then at the end of the day, I want to, you know, I don't remember what you said or wrote, and and I don't want to, you know, visit you again to see it on paper, and I don't want to, you know, visit everybody to ask access to a database. It would be much more convenient for me if I could see it in one place, right? Something called the patient portal, something that we all already have and have had for some time. And, and if, even if I visit a uh, you know, GP today and that GP sends me to a specialist and then that specialist sends me to another specialist, then at the end of the day, all what they wrote, uh, I can see it myself as well. I can see um, my vaccinations. I can see also, I, actually, I can make decisions. If I want blood transfusion, if something goes wrong, uh, if I want my organs to be given to, in, you know, for research or another person, those decisions I can all do online. Um, uh, for some time already. Uh, but the biggest benefit that we've probably seen uh, of the digital uh, system is, is, is uh, related to the digital prescription. So if you have a condition, especially a pre-existing condition, then it's really, really, really annoying if you have to visit the doctor every week or every month or every three months just to get the same prescription to the pre-existing condition that you already have. Uh, in our case, you don't have to do that. Uh, what you can do, you can call your, you can send an email as well, but usually call is faster. Uh, call the doctor, you know, the doctor knows who you are because you have the same GP. I've had the same GP for over 30 years now. And, um, and that GP knows me, but that doesn't even matter. Even if you call uh, on my name and introduce yourself as me, then the prescription will be set up still on my name, not on your name, so it doesn't matter. So anyways, the doctor knows me, sets up a prescription, 
and I can go to any pharmacy in Estonia, just you know, identify myself, and I can pick up that medicine. Um, yeah, there's another thing related to this, but I will not mention it right now. Then uh, personalized uh, medicine. Now that is something that is linked to the, also the genome information that you were um, uh, talking about before. And we actually do have something called the Estonian Genome uh, Center. And the idea is to have a lot of um, adult population, but also other uh, age groups uh, data in that. And then not only can we, you know, cure people of disease, but we can hopefully also prevent disease uh, at larger scale. And if we do know that there's, according to the statistical data, which we can already do, um, according to the statistical data, if there's, let's say, 8% of a certain population group in a certain area that is most probably going to have a disease, a certain disease, then we know that also we can provide the cure for you know, that group may be a bit more, a couple of percent more, to be sure, but we don't have to provide the cure for, you know, 100% of the population, because they're not going to have the disease anyways. And we can allocate that money somewhere else. And, and it's already, already happening as well. The idea is that we can actually link uh, genome information also um, together, at least in terms of research, to a real person and a real... So, um, the idea of keeping it is an anonymous so that if there's some sort of manipulation, then you don't know who actually that person is. But we also want to know at some occasions who that person is, because then we can see if the genome information actually reflects in real life as well. Because there's, there's something that is, that is lacking maybe today as well, is the fact that there's a lot of research done, but it's, it's kind of in, in perfect conditions. You have a, one individual with one disease, and then you do the trials on that person with that disease. But in real life, the, the person usually has maybe two or three or five different diseases. So how those diseases interact with that, uh, let's say, cure and so on. So we want like this real life uh, data as well. And, and one of the greatest things uh, in the latest years has been the drug interaction decision support system, essentially, which means that now if a doctor gives you a drug and you've already prescribed another drug, then the database will say, hold on, you know, that person shouldn't be getting that medicine. And in the first month, there was already, like, we're talking about 1.3 million people uh, altogether. There's over 2,200 interactions that were kind of dangerous. There, there's, uh, of course, a lot more, but sometimes they can still operate if you are cautious about the fact that this happens. And, and I think one of the most important things in terms of uh, clinical trials is, is something that we call a data lake. Um, in Estonian, we actually don't call it a lake, but uh, internationally it's been recognized that we should call it a data lake. Essentially, it's, it's a huge pool of data uh, from all of the all of the medical institutions that could be used for research. Um, today we have, uh, so it is already possible, but the friction or the challenge today is that we have 42 different uh, health databases uh, and all of them have an individual administrator and that if you want to do research, you have to ask this each individual administrator if you can do research. We would rather that there's one point of contact and, and then uh, we would not give you, you know, data you know, we wouldn't give the data out from this data lake. Uh, the, the research will be done inside or as a platform. Essentially, that's what we're doing right now. Because if we give it out, then we don't know how, what you add to that data, how to man manipulate with that data, and, and we don't want to do that, really. Hardly we give, give out any data, but that's not even necessary. You just need to give access to certain people or maybe certain researchers, and then it's already, already taken care of. 
And, and the, the overall idea is that uh, then everybody kind of that needs to have access can have access. And, and um, the challenge, what we have in terms of, let's say, e-health or, or healthcare overall is the same that a lot of other institutions also have, it's the, or institutions slash actually uh, countries have, is that we have an aging uh, and decreasing population and we can't afford to have the conventional healthcare system anymore. But also what is important, especially in terms of clinical trials, is that uh, probably you agree, I guess, is that clinical trials can be uh, crazy expensive. Not, not like, you know, 4G access, unlimited, crazy expensive, $10, but literally crazy expensive. And take a lot of time. And in order to get around that, there's, you know, what was it called now? Uh, well, MAPP models, essentially, I think it was. Uh, Medicines, uh, adaptive pathways, or so to patients, I think it was called. Essentially, that you can start doing clinical trials on a, s a smaller scale and then grow from there, and they can be faster, more flexible. And and we like our system essentially could be used for that. We're not saying that you can use and 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 uh, you should use, but it could be used. And also, the situation in the European Union currently on that let's say, uh, content is that, that in certain circumstances, this is totally fine to do anyways. Uh, if there's no other medicine for, for that uh, disease, then you can do it. The question today is, is uh, you know, should it be, how much should it be restricted or sh maybe we should lift the restrictions a bit? And that is something that we can't really decide on our own as a nation state. We are part of the European Union, as I said, so that is the discussion that's going on right now. But the idea is still that the, the, the processes shouldn't be as, as time-consuming and, ex and expensive, and, and the opportunity to have it in a digital way actually helps it quite a bit. Um, now, still a couple of things I want to mention. Now, you might be also curious about, you know, if you have a lot of data and everything's digital, then how can you be sure that the right people have access to the right information and, and how to protect the system and so on? So what we have is something called the electronic ID. In our case, it's the, in the shape of an ID card primarily, but also other solutions now. And, and essentially, uh, it, it, it enables us to minimize the risk that we do not know who is behind the computer. And if we are able to minimize the risk that we do not know who is behind the computer, then we can, with relative certainty, claim that we do know who is behind the computer. And now if we know who is behind the computer uniquely, uh, we know what they want, and, and, uh, and uh, we have the information they want digitally, then we actually can start doing a lot of things. Everything, of course, is locked. Everything um, uh, is set up in a way that the wrong people don't have access to the wrong, wrong data. And, and this enables us to actually do quite a lot of uh, interesting things. Now, the other thing is that if you have a lot of information in a lot of different databases uh, about the people, then first of all, you want to be able to exchange that data in a secure way, simplified way maybe, transparent way. But also you want to be sure that the people themselves have access to that uh, information. So thanks to the ID card, let's say, or the EID system and the X-Road data exchange layer, we actually can people give access to their own data, which uh, brings me back to the thing that I was talking about before is that how to get people using the system and trusting the system. Well, trust is related to transparency. 
Uh, trust is also related to good practices and, and good, uh, maybe a great track record. But before there can be a good, great track record, you need to have a certain time you know, span where people already use it. And it's really hard to get them using it unless they trust the system or they have this you know, idea that they can trust the system and transparency comes in there. And, and it, what means in our case is that when we talk about medical data or any other data in Estonia, uh, every individual can actually log in and see who has, to, who has used their data when, why. And they can ask, why did you do it? And they have to tell you why they did it in a satisfactory manner. And if they don't, then there are different outcomes, but essentially, according to our penal code, which is quite simple as well, uh, you can essentially get a fine, lose your job, lose your license, or go to jail. And go to jail. No, or, probably. We don't punish twice for the same thing, so probably or go to jail. Um, and, and it has happened. You know, police officers in Estonia, in Estonia have gone to jail because they looked up uh, privileged information, gave it to third parties, and those third parties used it you know, in a not so positive way. And that's you know, directly jail time for you. Uh, if you just look it up because of curiosity and you don't maybe give it to third parties, then probably you won't go to jail that would be a bit too severe, but you probably still lose your job, lose your license. You can never be a police officer again. Uh, medical workers, I don't think every, anyone has ever lost, uh, or gone, gone to jail, but they have lost their jobs. And, and uh, not in the past couple of years, five or so, but, but it has happened before as well. But now, a bit uh, quickly about the overall security model as well, because blockchain was mentioned before, so I think I need to mention it again. Is that overall, we, we, our security model is very conventional if you, if you look at it and if you are, have dealt with uh, information systems. We need, you know, confidentiality. We need to know who's behind the computer. You know, availability of data and balance of data protection. You, I need to have access to my data. You need to have access to your data. You shouldn't have access to my data. I shouldn't have access to your data. You know, and then the, the, biggest thing. That, that is a, something that I probably shouldn't say, so I'm still discussing with myself in my head if I'm going to say it at the end of this sentence or not, but essentially, I, I am, okay, I am. Uh, um, is, what is more important? Is it data security or data integrity? You know, we all say you know, data security is absolutely important, but we all also know that there, anything that is digital can be hacked. Maybe not today, but tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, then the day after tomorrow. And, and the moment we get you know, actually functioning long-term um, data decryption availability, let's say quantum computing, then things will change a lot. So you would want to have at least some kind of a way to determine if, if somebody hacked you, then if they did or if they didn't, and then what was changed. For that, we, use, we do use blockchain. We don't put data on the blockchain. If somebody says that they do put data on the blockchain, then your first question should be, yes, but what if you need to change the data? Because on blockchain, you shouldn't be able to change the data. But what we do is we, put, uh, we send hashes of the transactions to the blockchain provider. They essentially generate a hash from it and then send it back to us. And the solution that we do use uh, two great thing, three great thing, things about it. It's, it's highly scalable. Uh, it's super fast. Uh, we have essentially real-time awareness or something that is very close to real-time awareness in a sense that if somebody manipulates with our data, we will know about it the next second it happens. And also, the third thing, we know what happened exactly on, on, on the scale of it. So maybe in a nutshell, uh, the example that our president also has said quite often, previous president, who's from Jersey, by the way, New Jersey, grew up in Jersey, was born in Stockholm, 
uh, still Estonian, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that uh, you know if somebody hacks your medical records and sees what your blood type is, like, you don't care. I mean, you don't like it, of course, but so what? Now they know your blood type. But if somebody hacks your medical records, sees what your blood type is, changes it, and nobody knows that this happened, then we can have you know fatal consequences. So in order to for this not to happen, we have, uh, we're using blockchain to guarantee data integrity. And now to wrap it up, essentially, so that you wouldn't be under the impression that everything happened overnight was super easy to do, um, we have a kind of a timeline that shows that there's always something to add. And although we are kind of getting to the situation where we reach today, then there are a lot of things I could add right now as well, uh, up until you know, 2020, 2022, and so on. So the idea is that this type of development takes time and, and because the world is constantly changing and in motion, you have to be flexible in order to do that as well. I know that telling that to the private sector maybe is not as relevant as telling that to the public sector, but it still is something to, to be noted uh, as well. And, and as a last thing, essentially, this now, the, the system that we have, this, this infrastructure, it has become really attractive to a lot of individuals. And what we realized a couple of years ago is that, you know, uh, a lot of the things, because the ser services and solutions and data, it's all digital, right? Then it doesn't actually require physical presence. So if people don't want to come to Estonia to do certain things, we realized they don't have to. We could give them access remotely as well. So anyone around the world, essentially. But there's a huge problem. We don't know who these people are. And, and even if we now know who these people, uh, no, we now know who these people are, we don't know who they, like, who they are remotely or digitally unless they have a secure method of authentication. And if their you know, countries are, don't provide one for them, we figured maybe we can do it for them ourselves. And we came up with the e-residency project, which means that essentially now anyone around the world, there are actually three criteria. You can't be a terrorist, you can't be a criminal, or you can't participate in, in recreational criminal activities, let's put it this way, and you need to have an uh, identity. And if you, have three, uh, if you don't have these two things and you have the one thing, then actually you can apply for e-residency and you can essentially have access to Estonian public sector, public services, and do a lot of interesting things. And, uh, and today, already like 45,000 people around the world have used this opportunity. And it starts from you know, establishing a company maybe that can do business anywhere in the single market, but ends up with, with maybe being able to, to use some services from the private sector as well and collaborate with the private sector. So there are a lot of uh, opportunities to utilize this. One note, though, it doesn't change your residency, it doesn't change your tax residency, it doesn't change your citizenship, you're still American, you're still uh, German, you're still French or whatever, but, but it means that now you have access remotely to our information system, and that can be valuable. We hope you enjoyed the podcast from DFARM 2018. DFARM 2019 takes place September 17th and 18th in Boston, with a full day dedicated to mobile and R&D on September 16th. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.